This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. So far in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he calls himself the preacher, it's presumably Solomon, so far in this book, what he has done is he has written a narrative, he's written in paragraph form, in prose, where he's laid out points and made arguments and given illustrations and examples to make various points. But now what he's doing is he's giving statements that are individual verses that each read like a proverb. And the reason is because they are proverbs. He's listing a number of proverbs in this section of the scripture. And so we're coming to something different. Typically, we could read a couple paragraphs and get a running theme. When you first read this, it's hard to see a running theme. It just feels like a a machine gun fire, boom, 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 just proverb after proverb, point after point. And it's a little hard to see how they're connected. Um, I think one way that they're connected is by verse 14. There's a theme in verse 14 that generally runs through the previous Proverbs that he gives us. Verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. So he's saying that God has made the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity, so trust God in both. God has made the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity, so trust God in both of them. He is the Lord over each kind of day that we have, each kind of season in our lives, and he's there with us in those days. And so he's sort of talking about how we can gain wisdom, particularly in how we respond to adversity. Adversity runs through these pages. So the first point, I think, that comes from verses 1 through 4 is he makes this point about wisdom, is that death is a better instructor than birth. Death is a better instructor than birth. Now, before he gets into that, he's going to say in verse 1 that a good name is better than precious ointment. So he starts with a statement about character and how are we living and what are we living for, and then that idea is going to carry through. A good name is is better than precious ointment. What he's talking about, he's not talking about like, uh, you know, some ointment you rub on yourself if you've got a rash or something. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about fragrant oil. And in the ancient world, in the Hebrew world, fragrant oils were very valuable. And so he's saying he's taking something precious. I mean, we might say a super, super expensive perfume um, that 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 it's better to have a good name than to have a, a, an expensive, rare, precious, fragrant oil. Uh, so he says the same thing in Proverbs 21. Solomon says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Your character, who you are, and how you're known for who you are, is more important than what you possess. Anybody, if you have the means, could buy fragrant oil, a precious ointment that he says, and splash it on and smell exquisite. You might be a scoundrel, but you might smell very good. Anybody can do that. It's different to be exquisite internally. To have the rare, precious gift of Christ-like character is very different. And uh, after the first service, somebody passed on something to me um, that this past week, the Hall of Fame receiver for the Cowboys, Michael Irvin, was speaking to rookies. Uh, he was speaking uh, at a rookie symposium to NFL rookies. And uh, Michael Irvin, uh, I, I believe, has three Super Bowl rings, but he uh, had some significant character issues, um, was in trouble with the law. 
and that sort of thing. And this is what he said. Hall of Fame uh, receiver Michael Irvin said that after his son did a Google search of his name, he realized that he would give back all his rings in exchange for a clean name. He'd give back all his Super Bowl rings in an exchange for a clean name. Irvin's making the point that a good name is better to have than precious ointment. And this is why the Bible addresses, this is a side point, I'm not going to address this now, I will in the future, I plan to teach on this, but this is why the Bible addresses um, gossip as such an insidious evil. Because what it says, the gossip, and in particularly passing on a false report, an exaggerated report, an imbalanced report, slandering someone's name, we find that so easy just to freely speak about others. But the Bible says that someone's name and their reputations is more, impression, more important than their valuable possessions, better than riches. So what the Bible would teach is it would be better to go into a guy's house and steal his possessions than to speak and damage his reputation. Because his name is more valuable than his possessions. So you are stealing. I am stealing from someone's reputation when we communicate about them privately and tarnish their image, their reputation, their character by communicating things about them wherein there's not an adequate. Uh, they're not there to explain or to communicate, even if it's whether it's true or not uh, to pass things on. That's why the Bible is so opposed to that, because one's character and reputation is more important than riches. So what you value, what you, if you tarnish something that is valuable, it's a, it's, a, it's a real evil in the Bible. So he's saying your character is what matters. Who you are is what matters. And then he's going to talk about having wisdom with regard to one's character. And so he says, the second part of verse 1, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of depressing because Solomon is talking about life under the sun. And what he's saying is, that means apart from Christ. Life under the S-U-N means life on earth. What he's saying is that apart from Christ, life is meaningless. Life is hopeless and life is empty. And so is this just him being all depressed and saying it's better to die than live? Uh, the Bible does say that. If you're a Christian, to live as Christ, to die is gain. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying it's better to die than to be born. Look at verse 2. This is, explains what he's talking about. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What, what he's saying is that the day of death is better than the day of birth. He's saying for the living. If someone you know dies, it's better for you to go to the house of mourning. We might call that the funeral home. Or if you gathering in someone's home that's lost a loved one. It's better to go to the house where someone just had a loved one die or a funeral home. That's better than to go to the hospital and celebrate the birth of a healthy baby. Um, or, as he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. He's saying it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. It's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Now, how can he say that? Because, verse 2, he says, at a funeral, at the house of mourning, we realize that this is the end of all mankind. What does that mean? Everybody dies. When you go to the hospital when a baby's been born, you're not aware of that. It's joyful. It's wonderful. It's a gift of God. I, I meet new babies all the time. So do you. People come into church. Hey, here's our new baby. He was just born uh, one week old, two weeks old, three weeks old. You don't ever greet that family and say, oh, it's such a cute baby. Now, you know this baby's going to die. And by the way, you're going to die someday. You know that, right? 
Like, whoa, gee, thanks. Um, you would never say that to someone. So there's something hopeful and exuberant and wonderful about the gift of life, but that the when death occurs, there's something sobering, and we realize we're all going to die. We don't realize that at baby dedication. We realize that at a funeral. And he says the living will lay it to heart. So there is a wisdom to be found. Verse uh, 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. So there's wisdom to be found at a funeral. And the reason is, is because it communicates to us the brevity of life. Everyone dies. We don't think about that much. But at the house of mourning or at a funeral, we think about how short life is. And we think about the fact that we are going to die. Now, Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the preacher. His name's Ecclesiastes. It's, he's not down on joy here. The Bible talks about feasts and parties. The Bible's not opposed to parties. The people of Israel were commanded three times a year to gather and celebrate God. One of these, they were called it sometimes to bring a tithe of their income, their produce, or their produce, what they've grown, and to have a big party where they eat it all in a week. And you could use money and buy food or buy strong drink, they said. And it's basically a big party where people eat and drink for a week, a tenth of their income. If you take your salary, take a tenth of it, and go to Costco and spend it all in one setting and eat it in a week. Eat it and drink it in a week. That's what they did. That's a party. So they feasted. The Bible has feasts in it. Jesus went to parties. Jesus went to parties. Jesus uh, produced, uh, turned uh, water into wine at a wedding. We had block parties last Sunday. We had Fourth of July party. We're not opposed to parties. Throughout Ecclesiastes, uh, the author has talked about how there is no joy apart from God. And that the only to have to be able to enjoy anything is the gift of God. He is all about joy. The whole book is about turning from fixing your heart on the things of this world to fixing your heart in God so that you can enjoy life and and have joy, which is only found in the Lord. So he's not all of a sudden now going downer. He's not like, well, I've been telling you about joy, and now this section, this is Johnny Raincloud. I'm telling you how terrible life is, and you're going to die, and oh, it's better to go to a funeral. It's not like he's changing his point of view and that we don't celebrate anymore. What he's talking about is wisdom. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And he's saying, if you want instruction for your heart, and you want to see reality, and you want to know reality, go to a funeral. Because at a funeral, the brute facts are on display. Reality is grabbing you by the neck and shaking you and saying, you're going to be here too. You're going to be laid out uh, in a casket one day yourself. I am too, unless Christ returns before we die. And so it reminds us that life is short. These are sober realities. Life is short. A funeral tells us that. A party doesn't tell us that. The maternity ward doesn't tell us that with with healthy children. Life, the, the typical feasting doesn't tell us that fact. So why does the person lay it to heart? Why does the person gain wisdom at a funeral? Well, here's why. Psalm 90 verse 12 says this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is what the Bible says. Wisdom is tied, wisdom is tied to an understanding of the brevity of life. Wisdom is tied to thinking life is short. Wisdom is not tied to thinking I'm going to live forever. I'm bulletproof. A lot of young people think I'm, nothing's ever going to happen to me. I'm going to live forever. And thus they act foolish. Because there's not this awareness that life 
is short. See, the reality is when we go to a feast and a party, we're not thinking about life is short. But when we go to a funeral, every funeral anticipates our own, someone said. Author Gary Thomas said, remembrance of death acts like a filter helping us to hold on to the essential and let go of the trivial. Death is a filter. You know what a filter is? Things pass through a filter and the filter catches some stuff and lets other stuff pass through. That's a filter. Death is a filter, or the, the thought of death is a filter. A funeral is a filter. So that all the stuff flows through and the trivial stuff gets caught, and what passes through is real life. What really matters, you think about real life at a funeral. I remember when my mom died. She's the closest person to me that has ever died. And so I've been in the house of mourning as a guest a number of times, meaning that I've visited friends or family who've died. But in 97, when my mom died, that was the first time where I had been a host, so to speak, as a family member. I'd been a host at the house of mourning. And as I think back on her death, it was sudden, it was quick, it wasn't like a slow death that we were prepared for. It happened very quickly, where I got a call in the middle of the night uh, to get on a plane and come, and by the time I landed and got to the hospital, I was greeted with news that she had died in the middle of the night. So it was very sudden. And what I remember... Uh, even though it was a lot of years ago, what I remember about the visitation before she died, I mean, after she died, visitation before the funeral is what I meant to say. What I remember about the visitation between her death and the funeral as people were coming to the funeral home uh, is the nature of the conversation and the nature of the reality of what was happening. I mean, it's just very real. Nobody came in and said, hey, Craig, have you heard, is it going to rain tomorrow? Nobody's <laughs> talking about the weather. Everybody's talking about, hey, you know, uh, how was your flight? How are the Rangers doing? Nobody really wanted to talk about the Rangers. If people are coming in and they're, they're speaking real things that matter. They're telling me my mom was a believer. Um, she's a believer now more than ever and uh, seeing Christ face to face, but she's a believer. And so they're telling me about what difference your mom made in my life. And I appreciate it. She was such a giver. She was an evangelist who shared the gospel with other people. She was a servant. They're telling me all these things that matter, like stuff that really matters about the Lord and her life. There's such an awareness of eternity and the things that matter. They weren't, they weren't just talking about, oh wow, didn't she have a nice car or where she lived? Nobody's even thinking about that. At the house of mourning, all the trivia is out and it's just reality. And people aren't embarrassed to be there are, but people are coming up to me. Some of them I'm not super close to and they're crying and snotting on my shoulder and stuff and is blubbering and it's like it's not like I worry what do people think and how do I look and am I crying in public or anything like that. People are just raw and real. Their real heart is coming out. Why? Because death cuts through all the trivial and there's just reality to it. Death clears the mind or the the death of someone else clears the mind and what matters is there so the lord matters we're talking about jesus at the house of mourning friends matter family matters all of the weighty stuff is there to talk about because there's wisdom in the house of mourning because we're just faced with reality. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about the weather. I'm not advocating some kind of lifestyle that every time we get together, it's huge reality. And that we can't go to a ball game or a movie or watch a TV show or go to a concert or just do something light and goofy. 
Of course we can do that. And, and, and throughout Ecclesiastes, he said to enjoy, he said the gift of God is to enjoy your food and your drink and your job. So he's saying the, the regular stuff of life can be enjoyable in God when we see them as a gift from God. So I'm not talking about some kind of morose. I'm just trying to say what he's saying, that we really see things clearly in the house of mourning. And that's why he said it'd be better to be at a funeral than a party for the sake of wisdom. At the house of mourning, here's the message. Life is short. Judgment is coming. Eternity is forever. And those realities are there. And the message of the Bible is Christ is a savior. I mean, the resurrection is always a valuable, glorious doctrine. But when someone you know who's a Christian dies and you watch if, if they're, uh, if they're buried in the ground, you watch their casket go down, you're aware that they're coming out of there. Christ will return. The trumpet will sound. There's coming a day when all those who die in Christ who will receive resurrection bodies. Wow, the resurrection is a great truth. It's always true that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. But you never hear that verse the same way like you do at a funeral. I can tell it to you right now. But at the funeral of, an, of, a, of someone who's trusted Christ, someone who's believed in Jesus, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Man, that that is a powerful truth for us. It's always a powerful truth. But wisdom hits us in the house of mourning. And so the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, he says. But the heart of fools, verse 4, is in the house of mirth. What is mirth? Mirth is, well, I looked it up. It means amusement. It means laughter. The NIV translates it pleasure. So there's wisdom at, at the funeral home and at the, at the house of pleasure. Uh, there is foolishness. Um, one word that mirth means is jollity. I didn't even know it was a word, but jollity. What is jollity? I think it's a lightness. What he's saying is not, that, again, I, we said the, there's parties in the Bible. Listen, no one should laugh heartily like a Christian. Really, only a Christian can have a deep, profound gut laugh, belly laugh, because we know the joy of forgiven sins. And we know the God who created us. And we know what it's like to be reconciled to God and have God as our Father. No one should laugh harder than the Christian. But the house of mirth is not profound joy based on the work of Christ and what that means for us. It's sort of the light sort of diversion, the levity, the partying that seeks to keep us away from the reality of death. It's it's sort of the sort of uh, the sort of laughter that tries to just cover our ears to hear the message of reality, cover our eyes from seeing the truth that, that, that life is short and we're going to face God. It tries to numb our hearts and numb our minds to the reality. That's what he's talking about. The endless diversion to that keeps us away from truth. It's what we fill our head and our minds with so that we don't have to hear the whispering voice of God inside telling us that life is short. And we're to turn to him and trust him and to believe in him. It's all of that kind of laughter, not real laughter based on truth. It's the sort of living a life that is saturated and drenched in entertainment so that it insulates us from the reality. It's the light, fluffy sitcom after sitcom, which causes us to not think about life in reality. Not that it's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch a sitcom at all. I'm talking about a house of that, a life of that. 
which insulates us from truth, is foolish, is what he is saying. See, we live in a culture that provides countless diversions so that we don't have to think about death. I'm quiet. You're, it's kind of quiet in here that we're even talking about death because this isn't really even polite conversation. You don't just talk about death. Doctors talk about death. Funeral home directors talk about death. Attorneys who are drafting wills talk about death. Insurance salesmen definitely talk about death. <laughs> it's to their best interest to do so because they got a product for you. But uh, but most of us don't talk about death and we're uncomfortable with it. I mean, I was just thinking. I, I mean, I know of like one cemetery in Frisco. I mean, maybe there's a bunch, but they're hidden away. They're not on the main street. I know of one, and I haven't even been to it. And I just know it because I got pretty blue bonnets at it. I mean, that's all I know about it. That's where the blue bonnet field is. I know of one funeral home. I've never been in it, but I know of one in Frisco. Maybe there's more. I mean, we don't even have death in, in out. It, it, it's sort of hidden away here. I don't even know. Do you know, like in the old days, that some of the Puritan churches in New England, they had their cemeteries not hidden away where you couldn't even know about it? They had it like at the church. So you hear a message. We're talking about, hey, the heart of the wise is in the uh, house of mourning. Life is short. And then you walk out the door, not into a, uh, an industrial complex or something like this. You walk out there and grandma's grave is right there. You pass it on the way out. Your family and the people that have died in the church and in the community, their the loved ones are buried right there. There's no hidden death. I mean, most anybody, anybody who had been my age would have probably seen multiple children die in their own house. Certainly seen relatives die. They weren't away, kind of cloistered away somehow, but everybody would have been much more familiar. But we are separated from the sobering reality. And so we have to work all the harder, really, to look at the Scripture and to think about these truths. Day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? Because we love death? No, because we love wisdom. And the message at the funeral is, life is short, and then comes eternity. So that's the first thing. He says that there's more to be learned by death, someone else's death. There's more to be learned than there is at birth. Secondly, he says that wise correction is a better instructor than the word of fools. So there's more to learn from correction than the words of fools. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. So what he's saying is just like it's better to go from, from wisdom's sake, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party for the sake of wisdom. He's saying for the sake of wisdom, it's better to receive loving correction from someone from the scripture than it is to go to a concert if, if fools are on stage. So if it's a concert of foolishness, then you're better off avoiding the concert and having someone speak truth to you. Now, that is just goes against everything because we don't like adversity. Death is adversity. Correction is adversity. And what the Bible's teaching us here is that God is God of the day of prosperity and God is the day of adversity. That's what it said in verse 14. So God's with us when someone dies. God is there teaching us. God's with us when someone takes the scripture and applies it to us like we're doing now. Maybe the word of God is rebuking your heart. It rebuked my heart this week. So maybe the word of God is rebuking your heart right now. If that's true, if God means, that means the word of God is adjusting your perspective. God's lovingly saying to you as a father, hey, think this way, like my word. You can think it another way. Think this way. If God's doing that to you right now, that's a gift. That's the father's love. That's a shepherd's care. And that's better than being at the concert of fools is what the Bible says. Sometimes we don't want to hear hard things. We'd rather hear the concert of fools. Sometimes we don't want to hear someone speak to us truth from God's word because it sort of hurts. And we'd just rather forget it. Let's go 
to a concert. I go to concerts, so please understand what I'm saying here. They were talking about wisdom, talking about wisdom. Doug Wilson, in his book that we have out there, he talks about this verse, and uh, he wrote that book in 1999, and he uses a, ve- a very dated cultural reference and uh, pop culture reference, and I was going to edit it out and change it and make it modern, but I'm going to read you just what he said because it makes the point all the more. So he's commenting on it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. This is what he says. If given a choice, okay, if given a choice between hearing a wise man enumerate your faults. So you got a choice. Given a choice between having a wise man tell you from the Bible your faults or, on the other hand, hearing the Spice Girls try to sing something. He wrote it in 99. The, sp- the choice is an easy one. If you can either go hear someone tell you your faults from the scripture, or you can go hear the Spice Girls try to sing, that's an easy choice according to the Bible. Now, I was going to change that reference and bring a modern day fluff. So I was just going to ignore the cotton candy sentiment and quality of the Spice Girls and just give a modern reference. One direction, something fluffy and meaningless today. But I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go with the Spice Girls because that makes the point. Who's thinking about the Spice Girls? Who can name any Spice Girls lyrics? Who's even? No one. They're not even on anybody's grid anymore. And that's just 13 years ago. Listen, in 99, you can't tell me that you probably can't even know the lyrics of anything by the Spice Girls. Probably don't even know who they all were. If you do, I don't want to remind you. I mean, please don't remember. I mean, just that. Let that be part of the past. But listen, in 1999. If you had someone sit down with you that you love and respect and bring something of truth to you that really changed your life, you would remember it. We don't remember the Spice Girls, but you could tell me where you sat. You could tell me I was at Starbucks and somebody told me this and it changed my life. Some of you guys say that. You could say, I was, it was at my college dorm and someone told me I was going the wrong way and needed Jesus and I got saved and I remember it like it was yesterday. Some of us can say, I was at a conference and someone preached a message on this topic and it changed my life. Why? Because wisdom comes from hearing truth into our lives and not from listening merely to the song of fools. I'm not calling them a fool. Foolish. Doug Wilson did. But I will say this, and I quoted him, so I'm kind of doing it, but I don't know the Spice Girls. They may be wonderful. I'm not saying they're foolish, but I am saying their lyrics aren't enduring. Uh, they're not going to be in your grandchildren's literature anthology. The poetry of the Spice Girls ain't going to be there. I assure you of that. It's not enduring, but the word of wisdom from the Scripture is enduring. So what's my point? Never listen to pop music? That is not my point. Not at all. My point is that there's, if you want wisdom and to think about life, it is this truth. Sometimes adversity, sometimes a hard providence, sometimes a hard word can change our lives rather than just listening to filling our minds with things that don't. He makes the point again in the second verse, the verse after that, verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So he's saying foolish laughter is vanity. Again, I think Christians should laugh harder than anyone. I think we should have the best parties. I think we should have the most laughter, the deepest laughter, the most meaningful, lasting laughter. But he's, there is a laughter of fools. And he says, he uses a cooking illustration. He says, if you have a pot... And the crackling of thorns. So you take a thorn bush and you put it under the pot and you light it to produce heat 
to cook your food or bring the water to boil or whatever it is. What he says is you're going to hear a lot of activity. The thorns are going to pop and they're going to crackle and they're going to make a lot of noise and they're going to burn out very quickly and you're not going to have any cooked food. It's not like wood. And so he said, that's like the laughters of fools. It's loud. It pops. It's boisterous. But the next morning you are empty. There is nothing to it. It's not a substantive laughter. It's not an enduring joy. It's the laughter of fools which just seeks to separate me from reality. It's not an enduring joy or an enduring laughter. And that's his point. And so he says, wise correction, that's going to bring you better instruction than meaningless laughter. I do think that you can receive wise correction with laughter. I do think there's joyous laughing. I've, I've, I've heard people say things some, that had truth to it, that you laughed because it was penetrating. There was a penetrating. It, it was a mirror of your life or your foolishness or your habit or whatever. And I've laughed and said, oh, that's me. Ooh. And it's been meaningful. So there's certainly that kind of laughter as well. But wise correction is better than the songs of the words and the meaningless foolishness that can be out there. And then what he does, and I'm just going to kind of run through this. What he does is in, in verses 7 through 10, he just gives several proverbs that talk, I think about adversity again. So there's death, there's correction. Verse 8, better is the, I'm sorry, verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. What he's saying is that even a wise person can go against their wisdom and even a wise person can uh, oppress someone else or in their, if they're being oppressed, that may be what it means. They can go mad. They can give in to the temptation of a bribe. And corrupt their hearts so a wise person can go off when faced with temptation. They can blow it. Verse 8, he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, remember, we're saying that God is the God of adversity, as verse 14, as well as prosperity. So what he's saying is that when you're in the middle of something, the wise person can look and trust God that he's sovereign over this and can say the end of the matter is going to be better than even the beginning or even right now. So I may not like the way things are right now, but God will bring, make all, th- work all things for my good. God will use this for my good, even adversity or difficulty. And so there is a patience that comes to the wise person who trusts God, thinking that the end of the thing is better than the beginning. And I'm going to be patient in spirit rather than being proud in spirit. The proud in spirit charges God. Why is it going this way? Why isn't it changing? I can't wait to see how this turns out. I need something to change right now. God, I'm telling you what you need to do with your universe and with my life. And it's not just asking for a change, but a proud attitude is one that demands or criticizes or judges God for what he's doing. So the patient wait, the proud don't. Verse 9, he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. See, when I'm angry, it's because I don't see God with me, in me, helping me in adversity. When things don't go my way, I've got two options. If I can't change it and things don't go the way I want them to go, then I can be angry about it. I can be angry at you if you cross my path and hinder me from getting what I want. Or I can trust the Lord with it. And say, Lord, you are Lord even over this situation. This is not what I want. So I can explode in anger. I can clam up in anger. Um, or I can say, Lord, I trust you in the midst of this. So that's what he's saying. How do we respond? Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
So the person who wants to long for the good old days, those were the good old days. That was great back then. First of all, our memory selective, so that's not even true. Usually it wasn't as great as you remember it. Oh, man, back when I was in high school, back when I was in college, what are you talking about? You were so insecure and messed up. And it, what do you mean those were the days? They weren't the days. Or when I, when the kids were young and little, it was great. You weren't sleeping at night. They were crying. You were complaining. Those were not the days. So we're selective in our memory. Okay, we are selective in our memory about the good old days, first of all. But secondly, to say it was great back then and it stinks now. I loved it back then. I hate it now. I wish it was back then. What we're saying is God was God of my prosperity back then, but God's not God of my adversity today. And so the person who's able to say God was with me back then, I sure like the circumstances better. But God is with me now. I don't like these circumstances, but God is still with me. And the end of the matter is going to be better. So do you see how it's all about trusting God, the God of our prosperity and the God of our adversity? And then the last thing he does in the passage in verses 11, 12 and 13, before we wrap up with 14, is that he highlights again the, the benefit of wisdom uh, in verses 11 through 13. Verse, I'm going to skip 11 to 12 just for the sake of time. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He said this in chapter one. There are crooked things in a fallen world. And God allows those things or God bends our path even certain ways in our lives. And we've just read some. Death is one. A death of a loved one is a crooked thing in our lives. And if someone dies, we can't do anything about that. Or he gives other examples here as well. Someone uh, that could be adverse, someone bringing correction, uh, oppression is one. Something happening that we're in, tempted to impatience and we can't wait till the end. Something that happens that we respond in anger. Those are crooked things in our lives that come our way that we don't like. Um, the, our life today is not what it used to be, so we look back and say, those were the good old days. That's something that's happening crooked in my path. This is I was going this way, and now there's something crooked that I don't like in my path today. And he's saying, we can't, I mean, there's certain things we can change, but there's certain things we can't change. And when we can't change them, we ultimately have to trust God with it. And that leads to verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God made the one as well as the other. That's his big idea here, is that God is with us, near us, in us, helping us when things are difficult and when things are going well. And that's never more clear than in the life of Jesus Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ. We really can take some of the things being communicated here and see a wonderful picture of the work of Christ. His birth is glorious, isn't it? Rob did a great job talking about that, the joy of the coming of Christ. I believe he mentioned that last week. But um, the angels show up and announce to the shepherd, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. The beginning is wonderful. The beginning of Christ's coming is celebrated and it is wonderful. But verse 8 says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. He, he comes to die. And his death is really more wonderful, dare I say it, because that is the place where he defeats death once and for all. That's the place where he dies in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And God is with him. God is with Jesus in the announcement of his coming, the day of prosperity, Christ has come. When he's healing the sick, when he's raising the dead, when he's multiplying the food and feeding thousands of people, prosperity, people are lining up to hear him. That is the day when God is present 
in the prosperity. He is with his son. He, God in the flesh, Jesus. He is with his son in, in the day of prosperity, but he's also with him in the day of adversity. In the day when he talks about oppression here, where he is oppressed with a false trial, with a, an unjust trial, where he is, um, where he is judged falsely for his actions. And what happens? When that happens, when he is judged falsely, what happens when he is beaten? What happens in his day of adversity when he is mocked, where he is stripped naked and nailed to a cross and he dies as our substitute? What happens? Well, he fulfills what we see in verse nine. Be quick in your uh, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. He's not angry. He's not angry for he knows the end of the matter is better than the beginning. He is forgiving. He is loving. He's motivated by patience as he trusts the father better is the end of a thing than its beginning when he is suffering for us and for our sins he is trusting his heavenly father and then he is dies he is buried he is raised from the dead and he triumphs over death and lives today jesus is alive today and his work is proof His work is the assurance to you today and the assurance to me today that God is with us in our prosperity and God is with us in our adversity. For Jesus endures tremendous diversity and God is with him and he is working good, your good and my good. The forgiveness of our sins is obtained through Jesus' adversity. He is with him in prosperity. He is with him in adversity. God the Father is with his Son and that is proof to us. He is with us in both as well. He's endured the greatest adversity. Jesus has gone through the greatest day of adversity so that you and I will experience an eternal day of prosperity with Jesus face to face in heaven forever. And the funeral of a believer reminds us of that, that there's a great day coming. There's grief in the loss, but there's a great day coming, a resurrection day coming when we will be with Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. This isn't a funeral. Uh, this is a regular Sunday service. Um, but we'd be wise if we treated it with the wisdom, if we received the wisdom of funeral today. And we thought that the truth is every one of us will die. Every one of us in the room, unless Jesus comes back first, every one of us will die. You will not escape. You, you will not beat the system. I will not beat the system. Every one of us will die. And when we die, we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And every one of us, me, you, your saintly grandma, everybody, will be found guilty before God. And so when we stand before God, we will have an opportunity to either uh, pay for, or we'll have a responsibility, to either pay ultimately for our own sins by spending eternity apart from God in hell, or to receive the forgiveness of our sins, and be welcomed into his presence because we've trusted Jesus as the one who died for our sins. There's really only two options. I pay for my sins or Jesus pays for my sins. And that's why when we think about death and we think about judgment, we can find wisdom because we realize, hey, it's not just party forever and nothing bad will ever happen to me and just laugh it off and do whatever you can to run away from the specter of death as fast as we can. The wise person faces it right now in reality and says it's coming soon. Death is for all of us. And so let's choose wisely now to believe in Jesus 
as our Savior and to trust him as the one who dies for our sins, that we may spend eternal life with him. That day it'll be too late. Today it's not too late. I'm not saying that to unduly cause fear or to manipulate you emotionally or anything like that. I'm doing that because that's wisdom. That's the wisdom that's found at a funeral, and that's the wisdom that's found today. If we lay it to heart, as the Scripture says in verse 2, if we lay it to heart, then then there's tremendous wisdom in the sober thought about my life is short. Have I trusted Jesus or have I not? So I'd encourage you today to turn from your sin and to believe in Jesus as the only one who can cover your sin. He died in our place. He was buried, and he's raised again. And all those who turn from sin and turn to him and believe in him alone receive eternal life, which is a new life today, not a new life that's problem-free, but a new life where God is with us and there is a joy even available to us even in trial. A new life today, and even more importantly, this is the wisdom of the funeral, an eternal life after we die. This is it's a very short today and a very long tomorrow, an eternal tomorrow. Jesus has come to give his life for us. That's the message for the believer. God is with us in our adversities today. He is with us in our prosperities. For the unbeliever as well, there's a message of hope and forgiveness extended to you. Jesus, turn to him today, I urge you. There's nothing more serious. There's nothing more real than that. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.